welcome to the eighth episode of my podcast. Thank you for listening. If you haven't listened before, this podcast consists of readings of my travel journal from when I was 25 traveling in Central America. And uh, I'm sort of rereading these for the first time as I record this podcast for the first time in sort of over a decade. So it's been really fun to kind of get to revisit all these memories. Uh, this episode, last episode left off just as we were setting out for a two day hike in the quite remote Salake National Park in Honduras, which is a, a volcano which was kind of covered in rainforest and cloud forest towards the top. And where I left the reading was that we were just setting out to get to the National Park to start our hike. And you have to get a pickup there. There's no public transport. And the cost of a pickup can be quite a lot unless you can find other travellers to kind of team up with to reduce the cost. So, um, so that's where I left off and I'll get back into it now. In the morning, we were picking up a few extra pieces from the shops when two Spanish travellers accosted us. We were really happy to discover they wanted to go to the park too. But unfortunately, when we told them the cost of sharing transportation, $10, they said they couldn't afford it and decided to walk. We paid the full 10 ourselves and climbed aboard the pickup of a toothpick-chewing Honduran who drove us to the park entrance. Halfway along the road to the park, we spied the Spaniards sitting by the roadside. They'd got tired and decided to wait for us. Our driver picked them up, but unfortunately didn't reduce our fee accordingly. But the Spaniards turned out to be a really nice couple, and there was a nice surprise waiting for us at the park entrance. When we signed the visitor's book, there was a message from Elizabeth and Erwan. They were inside the park, had arrived the day before us, and were staying two nights. That meant that we'd definitely run into them at some point, as there was only really one main trail, and we might even camp at the same point overnight. We climbed up through Pine Forest for half an hour until we reached the main camping area and the deserted visitor centre. There we rested a little, and the Spaniards wrote out for us a couple of recommendations for places to stay and visit in Nicaragua. We continued hiking over a wobbly plank bridge that crossed a pleasant river, then began to zigzag up a steep switchbacking trail. I was already pretty tired, and in spite of liking the other couple a lot, I was finding it stressful hiking with them, as I felt that I was the least fit person and I felt pressured and embarrassed if I had to stop and rest. We reached a rest area and sat for a while, then continued. Eventually I stopped and said that I wanted to eat lunch and to my relief, they, the couple decided to continue ahead. They were planning to take a different path to a mirador as they weren't going to stay overnight. We said goodbye and after another rest, Richard and I continued alone. We eventually seemed to crest the very steepest part and continued away through a more dense forest on a slightly more level pathway. We crossed a couple of small streams, ascending and at times descending, but generally maintaining an upward trajectory. And then to the relief of my strain to the limit thighs, we began a quite protracted descent. This was worrying, however, as it seemed to cancel out the progress we'd made in ascending the mountain so far. We crossed a small waterfall and I stopped to eat tin tuna and sausages with bread. Then the indescribably gruelling ascent began again. I was so tired that at times I'd stop for a short rest, then continue, and after only four or five steps had to stop and rest again. I got a bit tearful as I really had no idea how far we were from the camp. At one point we even stopped and considered going back, but I was convinced we must be nearing the camp and felt that going back would probably be even more hard work as it was a much greater distance, even though it was mostly downhill. After five or six hours in total, we heard voices in the forest and a man on a mule passed us. We asked how far to the camp and he waved his hand, but we didn't understand the reply. We trudged on up the next hill and came upon the Don Tomas camp suddenly and with so much relief. 
The voices we'd heard turned out to be those of four workmen who were building a newer and better accommodation at the camp for hikers. We put down our day packs and the sleeping bags which had started out tied to our day packs with string, but which we'd been carrying in our hands ever since our strings had all snapped. The skin of my arms where it had been in contact with the sleeping bag as plastic cover was drenched in sweat. Then we spied Elizabeth and Owen's tent, the same one we'd slept in twice at El Mirador. We asked the men if it belonged to a Mexican-French couple and they said yes, that they would be returning from the cloud forest later. We sat by the tent and tried to rest, but hordes of mosquitoes descended on us. We hadn't brought any repellent, assuming that we'd be too high up for mosquitoes. If I'd known Owen and Elizabeth any better, I would have gone into their tent for a nap and to get away from the mozzies. As it was, we had nowhere to hide, both of the shacks that the men were working on being unfinished and open to the air. I was miserable, exhausted, and being bitten to pieces. Richard found a small clearing nearby and announced his intention to build a fire to keep the mosquitoes away. I thought he was mad, all the wood around us was soaking wet, and I just spread some bin liners on the ground, got into my sleeping bag and did it up tight around my head. After a while I heard flames crackling and spitting and popped my head out to look. Richard had managed to get a small fire going and bored of hiding in my sleeping bag I decided to help. Having a task to focus on helped and we soon had a nice fire going, although big pieces of wood were scarce. But the wet wood made a lot of smoke which seemed eventually to dispel the insects. And then out of the forest behind us strode Erwan with Elizabeth close behind. It was a surreal moment meeting up on the side of a remote Honduran mountain. We compared notes on the exhausting trail and asked them if they'd made it to the top. They'd tried but had been confused about the route and just decided to come back instead rather than get lost. We all sat by the fire and caught up on news, then Erwan got out his camping stove and brewed up a pot of coffee. As it got dark, some of the workmen strode over to chat, and then we ate our respective dinners. Another thing that I remember that I didn't write about at all in the journal uh, was that several of these workers that we were chatting to were telling us about how they wanted to travel to the US to kind of cross the border and work illegally. Um, and it was quite interesting talking to them about that. I remember at the time being very sort of concerned for them and wanting them to have a sort of realistic idea of what it would be like but at the same time I'm sure they did I'm sure they you hear accounts of what that's like from other people I'm sure they had a better idea than me of what it was like but uh yeah I think I feel like now I understand more why people would want or need to put themselves through that it was a really lovely evening and our slightly improved Spanish skills helped us converse in more depth than we'd been able to at El Mirador but the strain of communicating in Spanish eventually wore us out and everyone headed off to bed. The workmen encouraged us to sleep in the old shack with them as it was drier than the new one under construction. So six of us bedded down on plastic sacks on the floor and there was only just enough room for us all to lie side by side. To my relief, I only heard two mosquitoes all night, but nevertheless I couldn't get comfortable enough to sleep more than two hours all night. Eventually day broke, and everyone arose more or less just as tired as they'd gone to bed. Lisbeth and Owan purified some water for us to replenish our supply, then we said goodbye and headed out of the camp. They were heading back down the mountain and we were heading up a bit further. I didn't envy those workmen their job at all. Richard and I had the rest of the day to explore the higher parts of the trail, then to retrace our steps down the mountain and out of the park, but with the additional 7k back to town added on. With this in mind, I was doubtful how far I would climb up as I was still pretty exhausted. After only 10 minutes or so, I told Richard to go on ahead as I wanted to rest and take it very slowly. 
He said he would climb to the cloud forest and then return and meet me en route or back at the camp. I sat on a log for a while, but the mosquitoes were bothering me. I then decided that I might as well continue on up the trail at my own pace, as the mosquitoes would surely disappear the higher I got, and I might find something I could sit and draw. So I plodded on, but soon began to really enjoy myself. It was really liberating to be able to go at my own speed, and although it was a bit creepy being alone in the forest, it was exciting too. I very soon entered the clouds, and the vegetation became pretty spectacular. Everything was carpeted in moss and dripping with moisture, and the foliage was very dense. The exotic leaf and tree shapes were brought out by the clouds, which made more distant trees fade in and out of view while bringing nearer ones forward. I climbed for a while, scrambling over slippery rocks and fallen logs so wet that they crumbled to the touch. When I rounded a bend and saw an incredible enormous tree stump shattered into a million spikes and planks, I decided immediately to do a quick sketch. I knelt on a plastic bag and began to work, mosquitoes settling on my arms and legs. As I drew, I kept hearing noises, which began to freak me out so much that I got a fork out of my bag to use in the unlikely event of some kind of animal attack. <laughs> After a short while, I called it a day and continued my uphill walk. After a while, as I rested and admired the foliage, I heard an unmistakable noise from above, Richard coughing. I yelled, and he yelled for me to come up. I wasn't far from the top of that particular hill, apparently. It turned out that he'd only climbed a little further than me and then had decided to return after it became more than a little creepy being alone in the cloud forest. We soon found each other. What took you so long? I gasped and panted. We strolled on up a bit further to the top of the hill where Richard had climbed to earlier. Strolled is a bit of an understatement. There were parts where the trail was so steep and rocky it was more like rock climbing than hiking. Then we began our long return trip, saying goodbye to the workmen as we passed. In brackets, just remembered one final cloud forest story. The bird that shot past me while I ascended and then again when I descended. I realised it probably had a nest among the rocks, and sure enough, when I looked, there was a tiny nest with two speckled eggs in it. Unfortunately, it wasn't a quetzal. Quetzals are the national bird of uh, Guatemala, I think, and they're, they're very rare. Um, gorgeous little green birds with very very long tail feathers that used to be used in ceremonial uh, headdresses. The hike back down again turned out to be mercifully quick and easy. I fairly sprang down the path happy to be heading back to civilization and to be going downhill. The extra seven kilometers into Gracias itself was the harshest part as the sun beat down on us unmercifully. Fortunately, it was fairly flat, but we staggered back into the Hotel Juan Cascos looking fairly shell-shocked and sat in the restaurant having a cold coat. We followed with a couple of celebratory cold beers and sat looking out over the town and hills beyond, feeling the intense relief that can only come after extreme discomfort. Even though this hike was a much shorter distance than the El Mirador hike, it was just the fact of uh, it being such an uphill. It was climbing a mountain, essentially, which... I'm not great at, I'm, I can hike long distances when it's reasonably flat, but this was all uphill and pretty strenuous. The following morning, after having some problems in the bank and running into Elizabeth again briefly in the street, we got on a bus to Santa Rosa de Copan. To our annoyance, the only way to reach the Nicaraguan border from Gracias was to backtrack and then take a massive detour via San Pedro Sula. But it turned out that the one direct bus per day which we'd missed, in fact, took just as long, so it didn't really matter in the end. We knew we would have to make one overnight stop in Tegucigalpa. Unfortunately, our last bus of the day seemed to have trouble with uphill roads and moved little faster than a milk float most of the way to the capital. Milk float. More things that are kind of out of date now. 
We consequently arrived after dark, not ideal, but it afforded us a nice view of the city from a distance at night. It took us back to Mexico, the last place that we'd dared travel at night. When we finally got off the bus after a total journey time of about 10 hours, we trotted quickly to the nearest cheap hotel, which luckily was only about four blocks from the bus station and was attached to a cheap cafe which was open late. We devoured dinner and then crashed for the night. I've got a brackets asterisk at the top of the page that we saw two buses that had almost collided as we drove into Tegucigalpa. In the morning it was on with the packs again, but a problem presented itself. We had barely enough cash to get us over the border, we couldn't be sure of the border charges, and it turned out that we would need a taxi to reach the bus terminal for the border at Las Manos. It was too early for the banks in Tegucigalpa to be open, and the cash point we found rejected our card. Ah, did we just have one card between us? We decided just to get to the border and hope that there was a bank there or that we had enough cash. We hopped in a cab and he dropped us by a bus that was heading to the border. Unfortunately, he had no change for our 100 Lempira note and while he faffed around ineffectually (laughs) trying to find us some change, we had to watch all the seats on the bus fill up. Finally, he got our change and we climbed aboard for a three-hour journey with only standing room left. Luckily, seats became available halfway through. Also, luckily, the border crossing turned out to be a large one with a money exchange bureau which changed a cheque for us at a terrible rate. We resolved to change up all our money for Nicaragua in one go at the first chance we got, as we knew that there were only about four cash points in the entire country and that even banks themselves were often quite hard to come by. This is interesting. This is something I was wondering about, um, not having looked back at these diaries for a long time, because I... definitely remember having trouble throughout Nicaragua trying to deal with cash um, and I was thinking surely it's not that hard to find a cash point but back in the day back in 2003 2004 maybe it was four cash points in the whole country after dealing with all the border hassles we climbed aboard our first Nicaraguan bus heading for the town of Esteli our first impressions of the country were that it was very poor. Honduras is also meant to be extremely poor in terms of GMP, but it had seemed considerably wealthier than this, and that the area we were in was extremely hot and dry. We changed buses at a busy rundown bus area. We were pleased to find bus and food prices reasonable again, back to Guatemala levels, but found the atmosphere somewhat more scary than we'd felt for some while. We couldn't tell if this was due to our preconceptions about Nicaragua, for example, due to Cecilia's stories of Nicaragua and Costa Rica relations. Uh, Cecilia was a lady we stayed with in Mexico who had lived in these areas, I think, and she must have told us some stories. Or if it really was a change of atmosphere. Esteli turned out to be a nice enough town with Sandinista-related murals and a pleasant cathedral plaza. Taking an evening stroll, we came upon a religious procession which took us by surprise. We'd thought of Mexico and Guatemala more as countries where these things took place, with the emphasis in Nicaragua more on political issues, for example. But again, we found ourselves confronted with all the Catholic pageantry, tall banners were being carried out of the cathedral by men in white robes, and the congregation was following with lanterns and candles. After watching this, we went to the town's two petrol stations looking for a cash point. In one, the girl reacted as if she didn't know what a cash point was. And in the other, there was a machine, but it didn't take our card again. Then we stopped by a tourist office. The man there seemed to know nothing about Nicaragua. (laughs) He told us that Lake Managua and Lake Nicaragua were the same thing, which wasn't true, and he hadn't heard of the Solentiname Islands. 
when we told him they were in Lake Nicaragua, he asked if we meant the Corn Islands, which are actually in the Caribbean Sea. We went to bed a bit exhausted, and in the morning continued on to the town of Matagalpa. This next section was written in San Juan del Sur on the 14th of May 2004. On the way to Matagalpa, we passed a lorry that had fallen off the road into a ditch nearby. As usual, everyone on the bus crowded over to one side to have a look. The men who'd obviously been driving the lorry were sitting underneath it playing cards as if nothing was wrong. Further along the road, we passed another strange sight. Literally hundreds of people camped out by the roadside. Hundreds of tiny makeshift tents of sticks and black bin liners. People were standing around or sitting in small groups, cooking up breakfast over fires. It looked like a refugee camp. It certainly didn't seem to be a permanent settlement as there were no other materials being used other than wood and plastic. Later on, the bus conductor came over for a chat. He asked us where we were from. True to the national stereotype of Nicaraguans being a fairly politically involved people, he began to talk about politics and he asked us who was the current Presidente of England. He told us that the people camping out were doing it as a protest. They were campesinos trying to make a point about the conditions they had to live in, lack of health care, etc. Campesino is a word that kind of means uh, quite poor agricultural workers, people that work the land. He recommended the Solentaname Islands to us very enthusiastically, as well as the Selva Negra, which we intended to visit the next day. When we arrived in Matagalpa, it turned out to be kind of an unpleasant place with a bit of a bad atmosphere. The first thing we saw when we got off the bus was a sign painted on the wall of the bus station advertising taxi users to only get into registered cabs. A stick figure diagram illustrated this by showing a taxi driver shooting his customer. Another sign showed someone stealing a woman's handbag. We took a basic room in a hotel where the washing facilities consisted of a large barrel of water in a shower cubicle and our attempts to make the toilet flush using buckets of water always failed. We wanted to spend the evening catching up on work, but as night fell, we realised that there was a power cut affecting the whole town. So that was why all the water and soft drinks we'd bought during the day had been warm, and why most people were sitting out on the pavements, making the most of the last rays of the sun. Luckily, we had candles left over from Salake from our mountain hike. Matagalpa's one saving grace was its cool climate. Esteli had been sweltering and I'd had to coax myself to sleep every night by draping a soaking wet headscarf over my face. After our first night in Matagalpa, we visited the bank to withdraw all our Nicaragua funds. The two girls who dealt with my traveller's check seemed quite intrigued with my passport. They commented that they liked the colours. While one of them made interminable photocopies of my checks, the other quizzed me about England's climate. Eventually they were done and we set out to find a bus to the Silver Negra. As we walked through the town, several people yelled gringos at us from passing cars. We didn't like the atmosphere at all, although everyone we dealt with on a one-to-one -one basis in restaurants or shops were very nice to us. We caught a bus up into the nearby mountains, and our scepticism at there being rainforest anywhere nearby was proved unfounded as we climbed higher, and the bus began to be spattered with rain. We got off at the turn-off for the Silva Negra, where an old tank covered in graffiti and rainbows marked the spot. We were a little concerned that we hadn't bought any protection against the rain, but it was a fairly but it was fairly light, so we set off down the path. The Selva Negra is a large farm and coffee plantation run by descendants of early German immigrants who named it after the Black Forest. It also features a largish area of protected rainforest with trails for hikers, a restaurant, various expensive accommodations, and even a chapel and conference rooms which can be booked for weddings and other events. 
The path we walked along to reach the reception was gorgeous. Coffee grew on all sides, with some giant trees left standing in the fields, abundantly covered in other life forms. Palm-type plants lined the avenue, their trunks green with moss, and at the feet of the coffee plants grew flowers of various types and colours. When we sat under a shelter to eat some bread, a curious large rodent-type creature hopped down a bank carpeted with tiny green leaves and wandered off down the road. I think I... Later on, I figured out these were agouti. I saw quite a few of these in this area. When we reached the reception area, it was also really lovely. There were fairly luxurious cabins with Germanic names like Gretel and a truly Bavarian look. There were duck, there were duck ponds, other German-style buildings set into lush gardens, even a cage with a beautiful wild cat in it. We paid, picked up a map and headed into the forest. There were quite a few other guests around, all looked fairly wealthy, and none really looked like hikers. At first the hiking was very easy, the paths were labelled every few metres and meandered gently through very pleasant forest. It was muddy, but the rain mercifully held off while we were walking. We passed the area labelled as monkey territory, kept our eyes glued to the highest branches but didn't see any. Then we branched off down a trail called the Peter and Helen Trail. It very quickly headed steeply uphill and became quite arduous. Fallen trees blocked the path, and in places the ascent was so steep and muddy that we had to use our hands, hauling ourselves up by slippery roots and vines. We realised that we hadn't seen any trail signs for a while, but continued for some time until the trail well and truly disappeared. By that point we were virtually at the very top of the hill, but we realised that the trail was far too difficult and dangerous to be in regular use, and we decided it was safer to descend again. As we began, a howler monkey started up and really made us paranoid. The descent was harder than the climb had been. It was even more dangerous than Salaki's Cloud Forest, which is said to be quite an extreme hike. In places we literally abseiled down using vines. Our feet would go sliding down loose slopes of mud and leaves and quite often it was only vines that saved us from falling. Occasionally we would grab the wrong plant and our hands would be spiked on numerous tiny thorns. But in fact I kind of had fun. I wasn't as tired as I had been in Salaki because the climb hadn't been preceded by six hours of strenuous uphill hiking. We eventually got back down again and walked around a little more, even running into a nice English couple in the forest as we headed back to the restaurant. We spotted another of the rodent creatures which ran off in loping bounds like a rabbit. Then we marched into the expensive restaurant, nicely caked in mud and sweat, and sat looking out over the pond while sipping coffee. We returned to Matagalpa and left the next morning for Leon. Thank you for listening to this episode. Um... Coming up in the next episode, the rainy season strikes. And as I always say, um, if you follow me on social media, you'll see photos from this trip that I'm posting, a few to go along with each episode, and pages of my sketchbook that I kept throughout this trip. And if you want to find out more about my work, you can find my website, katrinachapman.com. That's K-A-T-R-I-O-N-A and Chapman, C-H-A-P-M-A-N. Thanks for listening.